Now, it's not apparent from, your, from the sheet and from the reading, but our Psalms today actually start with an inscription, with an indication of the original setting of the Psalm. And I can read it for you here. A song for the Sabbath. This inscription, um, you can find it in most of our ancient version of this uh, Psalm in many languages. And it is as though the compiler of the Psalms wants to make it obvious to us that Psalm 92 should be sung on the Sabbath day. Now, Psalm 92 is the only one in the whole book of Psalms assigned to a specific day of the week. We know this Psalm was certainly used in temple worship by post-biblical Jewish traditions on the Sabbath day. But it's likely also that it was used in the context of worship and corporate prayer in biblical times. The practice of the Sabbath, of course, goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. The word Sabbath in the original Hebrew language means to stop or to rest. If you remember when God um, brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they were commanded to observe the Sabbath. In chapter 16 of Exodus, a day of rest was introduced when the Israelites were wandering in the deserts and the people were told not to do anything, not to do any cooking specifically on the seventh day of the week, nor would there be any manna or quail to pick for food. Instead, God would provide enough food on the sixth day so that people can save extra portions for the Sabbath. They can rest and to stop. The keeping of the Sabbath was then commanded by God in chapter 20 of Exodus, which many of us will be familiar when we read the Ten Commandments from Moses. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So just as God rested on the seventh day in his work of creation, so his people, made in his image, should also stop and rest one day a week. But now, if you think this means sitting around doing nothing, or doing all the things that we enjoy doing uh, because we have no time to do uh, during the busy work week, that would be rather misleading. To stop and rest on the Sabbath is not the same as doing nothing. We don't become completely passive at all. We become active, rather, in a different way, in a different sense. In our psalm today, we get some hints as to what God's people ought to be doing on the Sabbath. So let me now turn briefly to unpack some of this uh, for us, and it'll be good if you can just follow uh, the reading again on our service sheet. The structure of Psalm 92 can be roughly divided into four sections. Verses 1 to 4 open the psalm by shining the spotlight first to God. Verse 1 declares that it is good to praise the Lord and sing praises to his name. As is typical of the psalms, we are called not only to do this generically, but more specifically to declare God's steadfast love and faithfulness. It is God's unfailing love for all his people that should prompt the eruption of our praise day and night, especially on the day of rest. 
And on the Sabbath, it is good to sing about this with accompaniment by musical instruments. Now, in the 9.30 service, we get to do this quite a bit uh, because the children usually bring the instruments here. I fully encourage you to use any instruments that you possess today to sing. Um, verse 4 then give us a clue as to what the rest of the Sabbath uh, song is about. That, that is the psalm. Verse, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. The psalmist tells us that for him, the imperative to praise is not based on some abstract theology, but it's based on a theology derived from his personal experience of God's words. So the rest of the psalm, naturally, unpacks that for us, turning the spotlight to three real-life contexts, the wicked, the psalmist's own personal experience, and the righteous, and spare out the reasons why we should praise God. So let us now quickly turn to see how God's works um, have impressed on the psalmist. So first up, verses um, five to nine. How can the presence of wicked people be a cause to praise God, you might wonder. If you don't normally think difficult theology and song of praise go together, then think again. For in verses five to nine, the psalmist take us on a journey of theological contemplation. Look around you, he says. When you see wicked people flourishing in their wrongdoings, this is by no means a sign of God losing control at all. Rather, this is a sure sign of God, uh, of a people foolishly unaware of their own fate in God's universe. Now, it might seem that the wicked are flourishing today, and in the evil acts, they go unpunished. But what they don't realize, the psalmist said, is that good times will only last so long. For the truth of the matter, we read in verse 7, is that they are doomed to destruction forever. So whenever you see the wicked flourishing, don't be fooled. Far from it being a sign of God, out of control, this points instead to the profundity of God's sovereignty in his moral universe. For so deep and profound is his way of ruling that he tricks all the fools into believing that he is absent and that they are really flourishing. This should call us to burst into praise, the psalmist says. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So that's the difficult bit of theology done. Switching gear, just breathe. Verses 10 to 11 takes us back to the most tried and tested method to call God's people to praise. For in these verses, the psalmist gives us his raw personal testimony of God's, God's act in his life. We're told that God has exalted his horn like that of the wild ox. Now, the imagery here is a wild ox ready for battle. In our household, the ox is not the main uh, horned creature that gets most of the, our attention. It is rather the Ceratopsians. For the dinosaur nerds amongst you, you know that Ceratopsians have fearsome horns capable of scaring away even the T-Rex. At least I was told from the from the books. The thing about horns is that it symbolizes strength and capable um, of giving us strength to defend against our enemies. So the psalmist is telling us, 
God has granted me strength in the face of my enemies. He allowed me to defend myself and overcome my enemies. These verses hint at the psalmist's personal experience of God's deliverance. So the perishing of the evildoers we read earlier on is not just a conclusion coming from the psalmist's own theological reasoning, but what he himself has seen and heard. Now the spotlight finally turns from the personal to the righteous in the last verses. The righteous is a technical term in the Psalms. It is often used to refer to the people who loves God's law and meditates on it day and night, as we read in Psalm 1, for instance. The final cause for praise turns out to be a reminder of this promise in Psalm 1, that the righteous indeed will be blessed by God with prosperity and permanence. Verses 12 to 14 seems to be a call to a corporate reaffirmation of this promise in the face of circumstances that suggest otherwise. The wicked might seem to be flourishing, but don't be fooled like them, says the psalmist. They are like grass, who will be withered away in a moment. And in contrast, for those who truly flourish are the righteous who hold on to God's law and his promises. These one will be like an evergreen tree, bearing fruits and standing firm. So hold on to the promise of Psalm 1. It will be fulfilled because our God is a faithful God. This is why the psalmist ends this song by returning to the character of God that kick-started the call to praise. The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. God is right, upright and blameless. He has been a rock for me, the psalmist tells us. So he will remain a rock for those who trust in him. So to sum up, Psalm 92 gives us a pattern of what God's people ought to be doing on the Sabbath. For one day a week, we stop everything we do. We stop putting our work, our worries, our aspirations at the center of our minds and hearts. But in its place, we don't do nothing. We prepare ourselves to be captivated by God. We're called to sing praises to the Lord. And Psalm 92 models for us how this works. We are drawn into praise when we take on a personal journey to discern, to recognize where God's greatness is in this world, in who God is, in how he oversees the world in his wisdom, in how he graciously have delivered us, and in his promise for his people to flourish. One day a week, we are called to a different kind of activity, to drum the rhythm of God's greatness into our hearts so that we may live by it during the rest of the week. Now I can well imagine some Christians today might say, this is all well and good, for those who are ready, who are in the right mood, who are jubilant today to, pray, to sing praises to God. But I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated and struggling. And I don't feel like I have any energy to praise at all, to recount God's act and his wisdom, and certainly not theological contemplation. Personally, this does not feel particularly restful at all. 
Now, I think a number of us can recognize this voice in us. Because of this, I think it's all the more urgent for us today to rediscover how to praise God both in seasons of joy and orientation in life and in seasons of exhaustion and disorientation. For the psalm is a hymn book designed to hum, for us to hum along in every season. So in closing, let me illustrate this with some musical accompaniment and unpack this point briefly because I think it's rather important we get this today. So what does it mean to praise? I think most of us naturally sing praises to God to express gratitude and confidence in God. A lot of us will sing song with joy and we think this is the mood of praise that we, we, what we do every Sunday. So as a musical illustration, um, this mood of praise may sound a bit like the track that I would now, now like uh, to ask Simon to, pray, uh, to play. It's an um, uh, adaptation of Psalm 92. It's a contemporary worship song. So please, Simon, can we have the track now? the sense of newfound, liberating hope that I think many of us have experienced when we first become Christians, and also in seasons of transformation and of joy throughout the Christian life. In such seasons, we are wrapped up with this positive energy, this energy of newfound liberation. And so to express our wonder and amazement in this orientation in life, we praise God and direct our thanks to him. Um, I think all of us will be familiar with this mood of praise every Sunday, and every now and then we, are, we go home from our Sunday service feeling uh, reinvigorated to praise God through his will for us and his way for our lives. He's our rock and refuge. To sing like this, to praise like this, is to sing the resurrection hope that we have in Christ. But of course, there's another mood to praise. One that the psalmist himself encourages its original Jewish audience to praise God on the Sabbath. This is to praise in the mood of God's people after the exile. After the destruction of the temple and exile to Babylon, how can God's people respond? 
in the face of such circumstances. Book four of the Psalms is a call to the Israelites to embrace their new situation that is so disorientating. In book four, unlike the first three books, and I fully encourage you to go and look this up, the focus is no longer on God's anointed king. We have fewer and fewer Psalms that is about David and about God's kingdom. And the focus, rather, is on um, God's law and covenantal promises made with Abraham and Moses, a foundation that, of course, goes much, much deeper and much further than the kingdom. Now, placed at the beginning of Book 4, Psalm 92, read, read in context, was an effort to induce in the worshipping community a robust resistance to leave God out in the light of most disorientating experience. The exiled people have lost their king, and the temple have been destroyed, and all the practices of faith are no longer what they used to be. But it's as if the psalmist, in calling the Israelites to praise, say to them, even when the king and temple are no longer what they used to be, we can still praise God, because we can praise him in expectation. Now, here's my second musical illustration uh, to give a sense of what I think to praise in this mood might sound like. So Simon, please, can we have the second track? Oh, by the way, this is sung in Hebrew with an English uh, chorus. verses of the psalm, including the inscription on, to praise on the Sabbath, uh, by a Canadian contemporary composer called Sro Iving uh, Glick. Now, I don't know the composer personally, but this track, obviously, offers a completely different sound world than our first track on, on the same set of words. 
Unlike the first track, the opening introduction is full of uncertainty and turbulence. In no way does the music give us any sense of jubilant positivity at first. But what we do have here is a different mood of praise. The call to praise, beginning in the chorus, communicates a call to swim against the tide of turbulence. To praise and to seek Sabbath rest, despite disorientation, and to learn to praise in this mood is to find a praise in expectation, a praise of rest and of God who can bring this rest despite circumstances. Now, I think today to learn to praise in this second mood is equally important as the first. When we turn to face our tired self sometimes, our frustrated plans, our broken communities, and still insist to praise God, we're joining ourselves with the post-exiled Israelites who refuse to let God out of the picture, even in the most disorientating circumstances. And when we're able to praise in this way, we imitate the faith of our forefathers and begin to sing a resurrection hope that truly passes through the passion and crucifixion. So the practice of praise on the Sabbath in seasons of orientation and disorientation calls us into a subversive kind of living. In a society that calls us to be more, to work more, to get more, we're called to take up the Sabbath to stop, to stop trying to be more than who we can be and let God to be God. The act of praise disciplines us, as we have seen, to see God, not ourselves, as the ultimate source for our security and flourishing. So I pray the Holy Spirit will guide each of us to grow into the life of praise on the Sabbath. And may he also show us, as a church, how to live a life of corporate praise on the Sabbath. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you will teach us how to stop, not as inaction, but how to act in acts of praise and worship so as to be filled by you and to be filled by the security that comes from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, in whom we have hope, much greater hopes than the original readers. Amen.